Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. I'm your host, Timmy G, providing your weekly dose of insight and inspiration for mental and emotional well-being. Are you ready for your weekly brain bath? Let's go. Mental health news from around the globe. I'm your host, Timmy G. From cbc.ca, the Netflix show 13 Reasons Why is not for younger audiences, according to a mental health educator. Self-harming, substance abuse, and school shootings, these are a few of the themes that are addressed in the new season of the show. After the premiere of the first season, the search phrase, How to Commit Suicide, rose 26% above what would normally be expected for that time. Searches for suicide prevention and suicide hotline number also increased by almost 20%, according to an October 2017 study. The second season, which premiered May 18th, has viewers wondering if it should even be seen by younger audiences. Jenny Almeida, mental health educator for the Canadian Mental Health Association's Windsor Branch, watched the entire second season, and arrived at one conclusion. The show is not for youth. This is adult entertainment, but we know our youth are watching this, and that's scary, she said. The second season opens with a public service announcement, prompting viewers to seek help if they are triggered by the show's subject matter. Actress Catherine Langford said in the public service announcement that By shedding a light on these difficult topics, we hope our show can help viewers start a conversation. While Almeida applauds the show's efforts to spark discussion, she's also concerned with how young viewers might be influenced by the show's subject matter. She says it's great that they're strongly encouraging viewers to reach out and get help. I'm sure it's going to help, but the show has also increased suicide ideation. Sharice Polly, mental health lead for the public board, has seen every episode of the show. She said the board has implemented guidelines on how to point distressed students in the right direction. For several years, she says, we've actually been training all of our staff in suicide intervention, being able to identify students who are showing those indicators of suicide. One of the themes addressed in the show is school shootings. Polly said the frequency of similar events in the U.S. has been a cause of concern for Windsor's public board. Everywhere you turn, there's media around school shootings, seemingly on a weekly basis. Season 2 has kind of highlighted this. When shows do that, it concerns me. Almeida suggests viewers, young viewers, read the 13 Reasons Why book before watching its Netflix counterpart. She said the book starts off in a way that can encourage healthy discussions between parents and children. She said then after, parents can say, if you want to watch the series, let's watch it together. And then youth are able to say, I get it. The series is going to be a little bit different. This is TV. It's entertainment. Netflix allows parents to restrict their children's access to shows by setting up a special four-digit PIN code. Almeida says the youth can come up to the parent and ask if they can watch this. Parents are going to have to watch with
with their kids and speak more about it. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web cfrc.ca. If you want to access past episodes of Talk, you can go to the website, click on Listen, access the archives, Wednesdays 4 p.m. And this from Bustle.com, how to talk to a parent about a mental health issue you think they're ignoring. Despite the fact that roughly 450 million people worldwide have a mental illness, this according to the World Health Organization, the stigma surrounding mental health issues remains. Try as we might to tear down that stigma, it can feel like for every step we take forward, something throws a wrench in the process and we end up taking two steps back. It's because of this stigma that sometimes people who have a mental health issue refuse to acknowledge it. And when it's a loved one, a parent especially, it's something we have to confront. Relationship expert Dr. Carolina Castanos, founder of Moving On, says, You need to remember that personal growth, being able to see oneself, is a personal journey. It's something that each of us has to do on our own, at our own time, and when we are ready. This is one of those things you cannot do for your loved one, and you cannot force them to has to be wanted by them. If you are too direct, you will hit their defenses and they will push back. It's important to proceed cautiously, carefully, with an open mind and an open heart when you talk to a parent about a health issue that you think that they're not dealing with. Here are seven tips for how to do so according to some experts. Come up with a plan. As much as you might be frustrated and even worried for your parent, You can't just jump right into talking to them about their mental health issues. You don't want them to feel attacked in any way. When people are backed into corners, they either lash out or they run for the hills. Dr. Leslie Beth Wish, psychotherapist and author of Smart Relationships, How Successful Women Can Find True Love, says, Imagine how you feel when someone gives you advice or feedback that you did not seek. Most of us feel any or all of the following. A sinking feeling, anger, defensiveness. The words thank you rarely come to mind. So now imagine how your loved one might respond if you sit down for a heart-to-heart and say things that include any or all, all of the following. It's for your own good. You know I love you and would never hurt you. I'm worried about your behavior. Instead of talking to your parent without a plan, it's wise to come prepared about what you want to get across and how you'll do it. Number two, keep a diary of their behavior. When you have proof of incidents with dates and times, your parent is going to have a hard time arguing with you. Proof that's been marked down and kept holds a lot more water than randomly listing events off the top of your head. Include any incidents that might have tripped off their reaction, says Dr. Wish. Make a note about how long their reaction lasted. Rate on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being high, the intensity of the reaction. Give details about it, such as they slammed the door, they walked out for half an hour, they cried, they threw a glass, threatened, yelled, things like that. Number three, sit down with a professional. Schedule an appointment for only you with a licensed mental health professional who specializes in your parents' disorder, such as depression, anger, substance abuse, or mood swings. Your goal is to learn about their disorder. Bring your diary, ask for advice on how to handle it, Even if you think you know for a fact what type of mental health issue your parent has, take time to talk to a professional. Yes, the internet can open our eyes and uncover lots of truths, but a mental health professional, like a diary, holds more water than anything. 
Next, do your research. Search locally for organizations that deal with your parents' issue, such as alcoholism, suicide, depression, or substance abuse. That way, when your parent is ready, you don't have to fumble to find resources. You'll have them on hand to give to your parent when they ask. Next, consider talking to your other parent. After you learn as much as possible about what might be your parent's issue and how to deal with it, think about whether you can confide in your other parent, says Dr. Wish. Sometimes they can be in denial or feel too disloyal to rock the family boat by upsetting their spouse or partner. Since Dr. Wish stresses that addressing mental health issues in the family is something you shouldn't tackle alone, ask your other parent to get involved. Ideally, they'll want to help where they can, as opposed to turning a blind eye. However, realize going into it that the blind eye approach is a real possibility. Next, enlist another family member, an adult, if you have to. If your other parent doesn't want to get involved or you don't have a relationship with them, then you may want to consider reaching out to other family members or close friends of the family. Even if your other parent is on board, you still might want a little more backup. Dr. Wish says, consider which adults in your family, such as aunts or uncles, you could bring into your confidence. Consider people whom your parent or parents trust the most. Or, perhaps your parent has a very close friend whom he or she confides. And are there any mental health professionals or physicians in the family whom you trust and respect? Number seven, create a team. The goal is to create a team of trusted and respected adults in the family or among closest friends who would be willing to talk to your parent or be part of an intervention. Although on paper this can seem like you're all ganging up, there is strength in numbers. If your parent can just see how many people are concerned and willing to fight for them, it's bound to be even more effective. Talking about mental health is never easy, and this is most certainly the case when you have to talk to somebody who they themselves are not willing to see the issue they're dealing with. But as Dr. Wish suggests, if you have a plan and a support system in place, you're more likely to have a success discussion than if you just wing it. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web cfrc.ca. Our last article for today is from Vice, written by Johan Hari. Why basic income is a mental health issue. Canadian researcher Dr. Evelyn Forget says guaranteed income works as an antidepressant. Across the Western world, there is a rising epidemic of depression and anxiety, one that disfigured my life for over a decade. For years now, the United Nations has been trying to warn us that these problems are continuing to spike up in part because we have, as a culture, been responding in the wrong way. In its official statement for World Health Day last year, the UN explained that we need to move from focusing on chemical imbalances to focusing on power imbalances. At first glance, this sounds puzzling. What could they mean? For several decades now, we have been taught to see our deepest forms of pain, our depression, our anxiety, as primarily problems with our internal brain chemistry, some missing serotonin here, some missing dopamine over there. This is how I was told to think about my depression by my doctor. But the UN's leading medical figures have warned that this view is biased and selective use of research outcomes that cause more harm than good and must be abandoned. There is, they claim, a different way of looking at this problem, one that offers meaningful solutions. 
It was in Canada in the 1970s that one of the keys to this new way of thinking was first discovered. Canadian government chose a town at random, Dauphin, Manitoba, hope I'm saying that right, small town on the prairies, to conduct an unprecedented experiment. A large number of the people in the town were told something surprising. From now on, it was explained, we are going to give you the equivalent of $16,000 in today's Canadian currency. There is nothing you have to do in return for it, and there is nothing you can do that means we'll take it away. You are a citizen of our country, and we want you to have a good life. Then they stood back to see what would happen. Dr. Evelyn Forget of the University of Manitoba has carried out the most detailed research on this three-year experiment in a universal basic income. Many important things happened. There were significantly fewer low birth weight babies because mothers had better nutrition. People studied more and longer. Hardly anyone gave up working, but some people turned down lousy jobs and held out for better ones. So overall work standards in the town improved. But the most important result was a big fall in depression, anxiety, and other forms of mental illness. In just three years, hospitalizations due to mental illness fell as much as 8.5%. Compare that to the past decade, where global depression rates have risen by 18%. Why? If depression is primarily, as we have been led to believe by pharmaceutical company marketing campaigns, a problem with our brain chemistry, this makes no sense. The brains of the people of Dauphin did not suddenly evolve in those three years, but the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, has explained mental health is produced socially. The presence or absence of mental health is above all a social indicator and requires social as well as individual solutions. In reality, Depression and anxiety are produced by a broad range of factors. Some are biological, but many are social and psychological. This requires us to think differently about how we respond to depression and anxiety, Dr. Forget told me after she interviewed many of the people who had been on the Guaranteed Income Program that it works as an antidepressant. Severe financial anxiety is one of the several factors which has been proven to cause depression. Reducing that cause reduces the amount of depression. All over the world, I hunted for alternative antidepressants that should be offered alongside chemical ones, and I kept seeing this key insight that had been discovered in Canada in the 1970s. The most effective strategies for dealing with depression are the ones that deal with the reasons why we are in such pain in the first place. This is why there is such excitement across the world that Ontario has now embarked on a new experiment in giving a guaranteed income to 4,000 people to see the results. To comprehend what the UN and the World Health Organization are telling us, we need to fundamentally adjust our picture of these problems. When depressed people are told that their pain is simply the product of impaired brain chemistry, what they are implicitly told is, your pain is meaningless. It's like a glitch in a piece of computer code. But in fact, the emerging evidence tells depressed people, your pain makes sense. It is in part a response to deep forces in our culture and our society. And that can be treated with a very different kind of antidepressant. Johan Hari is author of the controversial book Lost Connections, which challenges conventional understanding of anxiety and depression. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, CFRC. Telephone Aid Line Kingston is a crisis, distress, befriending, and information listening service based in Kingston. 
Talk is confidential, non-judgmental, and anonymous. We are a safe place to call when you don't know where to turn. To reach our aid line between 7 p.m. and 3 a.m., call 613-544-1771. For volunteering information, please email talkrecruitment at gmail.com. Tune in every Thursday at 3 p.m. to hear the YGK Breakout on CFRC 101.9 FM or CFRC.ca. You'll hear from local artists, Queen's University artists, and a wide range of stories from bands in the area. Learn more about our local up-and-comers on the YGK Breakout on CFRC. Let's get personal. Our talk feature interview. Listening to talk, some upcoming interviews that we'll be featuring on the show in the coming weeks. Naturopathic Dr. Michelle Durkin will be speaking and sharing her story titled How I Survived My Separation Without Going on Antidepressants. We will also have personal coach, financial expert Nicole Butler. She is launching a new project called Rise Up, the Empowerment Project, which will focus on working with women, but also a focus on mental health and finances, financial health. And also coming up in the next few weeks, Vern Simpkins on being diagnosed as a young lad with autism. Originally, he was misdiagnosed with ADHD at the age of six. And then at the age of 16, age 15, 16, he was re-diagnosed properly with autism. So we'll be hearing about how that changed the course of his life, what he's learned over the years from living with this situation, and also his experiences with the Kingston Townsman Barbershop Chorus. Today's interview is a replay with founder of Inner Peace Meditation, Jason McCoy. Here it is. I started Inner Peace Meditation because I really want people to learn how to calm themselves ground themselves, just de-stress. Also, I'd like people to be able to start finding their own inner peace. So as you meditate longer, you can start to have your subconscious come to your conscious and you can start to learn about the blockages you put or the walls you build for yourself. I'd like to teach people how to be aware of those and start to work through them. And in the end, I'd really love people to be able to start their own meditation practice. So everything I teach you, I teach both active and non-active forms of traditional meditation. And through that, you should be able to learn to calm yourself, start working on your inner peace, and in the end, start your own and continue with your own meditative practice. Today I'm pleased to welcome Jason McCoy. Jason is the founder of Inner Peace Meditation. Jason, thanks for being here. Thanks, Tim, for having me. You've launched a business recently, and we're going to get into more about your business and the different services that you offer. 
maybe you can take us back in time and share more about your story. Sure. I guess it started sort of about 2005-ish. I was married, working for the provincial government out west, uh, doing environmental science. And I don't know, I started having body pains and stress with the job, stress with marriage. At that time, it was just sort of, you know, every now and then in your mind, you're like, this doesn't feel right kind of thing. And then it wasn't probably till about 2008, I started to really develop a lot of pain in my neck and shoulder from what my job used to be sort of field work and became a desk job. And that sort of, I started holding a lot of pain there. And I was having marital problems at the time as well, and it was actually my my ex-wife at the time recommended we try meditation. So we joined this six-month intensive course where we meditated every day for an hour and learned the philosophy of it for an hour. And it kind of helped me after about four or five months into that. I started to feel a little bit better. and But I also started to realize my pain was emotional pain also not just the job I was kind of holding a lot of stress in my neck and body and that kind of thing mm-hmm. meditation sort of helped calm myself one but as you make longer you do your subconscious comes to the conscious kind of thing yeah it's very similar to dreaming and I kind of you know you you build these blocks in your body and your mind and stuff. And some of those walls were coming down and stuff I didn't like was sort of coming to my conscious. And at that time I started realizing my marriage was probably not right. The job was not right for me anymore. And, you know, it took at least another six years after that before those realizations really set in. But And so when your wife, your ex-wife suggested meditation, had she had previous experience with that, or was this her first time kind of getting into that as well? It was her first time as well, like being, she was from South Korea, she's always had a Buddhist influence, so she didn't really follow or meditate anything like that before, but she found this course and wanted to sign us up, and I was like, sure, let's try it. I was willing to try anything at that time, and I stuck with it in the end, and she didn't, she didn't like the sort of doors it was opening in her mind, I, I gather. I don't really know for sure, but mm. that was my impression of it. But for me, it helped me start to see the real me, if that's the way you could put it, I guess. Mm-hmm. You just started, I started looking, realizing more about who I am and what I want and what I need, which mm. was more. Back then, I didn't take the time to to just rest and decompress or anything like that. It was always go, 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 go. And the job was environmental works. And I took that pretty intensely. Like I, I really cared for the environment and stuff. So I really took my job too seriously sometimes. Mm-hmm. I just felt the weight of the world on me at that time. And that's probably why I had back and shoulder and neck problems also, right? You're just holding all that in there. Sure. And when you think back on your your relationship with your ex-wife, did you, you talk about holding things in, in terms of communication style between the two of you, when you look back now, do you think that you had 
pretty open communication style and there was an ease of flow there or do you see now that you really weren't communicating you know your own voice a lot of the time or how would you describe that time it's a tough one because we were fairly open with each other with our emotions and what we we're thinking what was going on which was part of the problem sometimes is you would say stuff that would just hurt each other i guess yeah but at the same time there's that mask self of yourself i guess is the best way to put it the sort of mask you put on and that's who you present yourself to society and other people i guess i in retrospect i kind of would have done i did that with my pain yeah i kind of masked it for my wife because i just felt like she's had enough i don't want to be all grumpy and negative all the time because i feel like this so i'd kind of hide myself and that probably wasn't the best thing but at the time you just you just do it because it you don't need it. i didn't need it anymore so i don't want to talk about my pain mm. i spent most of my time just trying to forget the pain because it was a constant it was a constant nerve pain so it was just always there so he's nagging you it's so put you in these moods kind of thing, you know? Sure. So you recognize in yourself that you were moody. Oh, yeah, big time. To the point that I was embarrassed. So I kind of shut down that mask on at work and even with friends and my wife, I think, in retrospect. Hmm. And in just prior to the meditation, were there any other things that you were doing or taking, ingesting, what have you, for the pain? Pain, I started with the pharmaceutical naproxen, which didn't really do anything, and it eventually made me sick to my stomach and gave me stomach problems and puking and nausea and that kind of thing. So at that time, I was smoking a lot of weed, mm -hmm. like more than I was comfortable with, but it was the only thing that would dull the pain enough that I could forget about it for an hour or two. So now when you say more than you were comfortable with, what what indicators were there from your vantage point that this is more than probably I should be? Like a slug sitting around, you don't you're not very communicative, you're not very wasn't very happy, I just sat around and smoked pot and I couldn't watch T V, I couldn't read a book or anything because my neck hurt too much after holding up, so I'd just lie there and listen to podcasts. Huh. I did yoga as well, like stretching and stuff like that helped. At that time, I was still in too much pain to do a lot that it, like, beneficially anyways. Hmm. So for any of our listeners that are just tuning in, I'm speaking with Jason McCoy, founder of Inner Peace Meditation. He also has a website, www.innerpeacemeditation.ca. He's just sharing his story with us of how he why he decided to start a business and the circumstances that led to that. So we're back in around 2008. He was dealing with some chronic physical pain due to his uh, desk job, also some relationship issues that were cropping up that him and his ex-wife were dealing with. And she had suggested at that time to try meditation. So they began that journey. And through that journey, Jay really started to discover parts of himself that were important to him, maybe parts of himself that he turned off or maybe never even wasn't clear about and yeah i wasn't listening to some of them hmm. i guess basically they're like you block them in your mind you're not even you don't even want to go there mm -hmm. meditation sort of helped 
bring them back to the surface at a time when I could mull it over better and accept or learn to accept what was coming up in my mind, I think. You did marriage counseling at one point as well? Yeah, we did marriage counseling, I think. I can't remember if it was before meditation. It would have been around the same time, but we'd stopped. The meditation would have been over, I think, by then. We did marriage counseling. I went alone a few times, like she did us both separately and then together. I found it useful for me personally in some ways because it it verified thoughts in my mind that I wasn't wanting to accept. And she kind of into the fact that I'm the type of person in space, quiet, time to myself to recharge and kind of mull things over where there's other people that just need to talk and be around people Yeah. to get to that same place, which was mostly the kind of people I hung out with. So for me at that time, it was, it was just draining. Like people would be trying to, you know, be your friend and helpful and stuff and listen to you. But I just found it draining and I didn't really want to talk about my pain anymore. And after counseling, that realization I got from her sort of helped me to just, I started walking, like I'd go for walks by myself. And that was my form of meditation even, because I'd be by myself. So you'd just be enjoying the birds and the trees and stuff. And you start thinking about your life and the issues you're dealing with. And I did find that it, it recharged me and got me back to a point where I could deal better with other people and being around other people and discussing things like that because I'd come to terms myself, I guess, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it might have enlightened me in a few ways of certain, either way we tonalized or certain words we used that would trigger each other, we came to realize. So it helped us in the short term for you know, a year, year and a half, and then we'd find ourselves back at the same place with each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know the place. Sure. So 2012, your marriage comes to an end. Yeah, we've, I finally, I kind of waited till I had control of my pain and was in a better state of mind personally before I even entertained the thought, even though that thought kept popping up in my mind. I wanted a, a clear mind away from the pain and my own problems to make this kind of decision, because I loved her. A piece of me always will. Mm-hmm. But we, we grew apart, essentially, is what happens. And we helped, we were meant to meet each other at that point in time in my mind, and we helped each other in our ways, and that time was over, I sort of came to realize. So we mutually got divorced in 2012. I was still very unhappy with my job because I was there for eight years at that time, so it was report writing. I'd done tons of work, and that's what hurt me. But that was the work that was to help change the environment. And I realized one day, I'm sitting here in so much pain, putting out these reports, that I hope would do a big difference in the environment, but you realize that it's a drop in the bucket, your effect that you're doing. Like, why am I putting myself through this much pain to do this? Mm. I got divorced, quit my job. I wanted to get out of BC as well because the damp weather just hurt my body, the arthritis and stuff like that. And I, 
at that time met these Japanese people doing what was called Tendo. And they taught me about it and used to participate in their ceremonies that they would do, which was a ceremony of protection and enlightenment, which was basically a, a ceremony we would talk about sort of life and how you saw life. And Tendo sort of it means path to the creator, your path to the answers of the universe, however you want to phrase it. But it taught me at the time that we all have a path in life and you kind of realize you're off that path based on your emotions, typically innate. But mm. you can be overly happy and that's not a good thing either. And just through doing that, it kind of, I found myself again through that. And I kind of liked it so much that I started asking how I could sort of become a Tendo monk kind of thing. And eventually I did and went off to England and taught their philosophy and met many interesting people for about six or seven months. And they had seen something, you'd mentioned in a previous conversation with me, that they had seen something in you that encouraged them to want to support you to go to England. What, what, were, what was it that they saw in you? They called it the true heart. So they, they would say they saw the true heart in me, and I was always like, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> But what they meant was, and it's, they're Japanese as well, and they're Asian issues sometimes, but I was quite used to that being married to a, a Korean woman and spending time in South Korea. But the true heart was um, just a person that generally cares for another human being and doesn't, like, you don't see these people in the hierarchy, like, oh my God, he's a business person, I should treat him like this, or he's the president, I should treat him like this. Their philosophy was you, a homeless is important or different than the president of the United States, let's say. They've had different opportunities and different experiences that led them to different places, but they're no, they're no less of a person in either position. Mm. And either person could easily switch those positions. Very interesting. So they send you to England for six, seven months, and you're teaching, mm -hmm. you're teaching Tendo in England. Yeah, and the way they sort of explained it to me, the way I felt it was, so Tendo's only sort of passed on soul to soul, sort of word to mouth kind of thing. So me and the person that I am, my soul would attract people that I could communicate with and would have an easier understanding with. And I kind of found that over time, especially when you met the Tendo monks and you see sort of the people that they could bring, they wouldn't be people that I could communicate as well with. So it was sort of a soul-to-soul -soul kind of connection, I think, is mm. sort of how it worked. Mm -hmm. And so why did you decide to leave England? Why didn't you stay longer? Well, I really liked, I liked it. My visa had run out, so I had to come home. I had the choice to go to Vancouver, Toronto to get my visa, and I chose Toronto because I grew up in Belleville, Ontario, and I haven't been back home for a while. So I went back to the sort of temple in Toronto and hung out there for a bit, and a friend offered to take me to Belleville, I think, for Mother's Day or something even. And I hadn't seen my mother in a long time, talked to her on the phone and stuff. And when I got there, I realized sort of, 
just how old and frail my mother had got and just how sick she is. She has like a bronchitis, lungs filled with mucus and phlegm and it's like 25% lung capacity. And, you know, I'd always known that, but to actually see it and not seeing it for so long, I realized how much I need to be here now. Mm. So I gave that all up and decided to move back to Belleville and be closer to my parents. And I don't know, for me, long ago, I left Belleville for a reason because I wanted to get away from Belleville and my parents and all that kind of stuff, just find myself somewhere else kind of thing. And then I find myself coming back full circle, I guess, kind of thing. Hmm. And this is in the summer of 2014-ish. It's fascinating to hear people's stories and just see the different places they go and they, that they're led and for a variety of reasons. And uh, your story is cool in the sense that, you know, you BC, Korea, England, and then you, you end up back at home in Belleville, Ontario. Yeah, and I think, like in retrospect, when we were talking before, all those travels were sort of my way of shedding what was stressing me out, which was the environment, the friends, the familiarity. I just needed to be somewhere where it was just me, I think, to find me, is what I realized. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was, I always wanted to travel, I always wanted to do things like that, but especially when I was in low places, when I traveled and went somewhere else, I found myself again, kind of without the influence of, you know, family and friends and growing up in small towns that really, they really tell you who you are and you may never realize that unless you leave and go somewhere else. And through meditation and traveling and being able to take myself away from those influences, I did learn that, that Friends, family, places, jobs can mask who you are. Or you start pretending to be someone different unconsciously. It's not a conscious thing, I don't even think. You just, you're told every day you should act like this. You do. But you might not, that might not work for you. You might need to be acting somewhat differently to be who you really are. Mm. And I think that's really what meditation and my travels helped me with. And that's why I opened the meditation company. I don't care about making money so much, though it would be nice to make money to live off of, but it helped me get through the layers that I had created for myself. Hello, I'm Tamara Cicerella, a counselor serving area residents who live with addictions or mental health concerns. Deeply committed workers like me assist people in reaching their recovery goals. On April 1st, Addictions and Mental Health Services in Kingston and Frontenac joins Lennox and Addicton in offering confidential, quality services. Addictions Mental Health Services, Kingston, Frontenac, Lennox and Addington is committed to providing the best possible services to all who need it. For more information in Kingston and Frontenac, call 613-544-1356 or in Lennox and Addington, 613-354-7388. Nintendo, they talk of it as you can think of your soul as a light. 
it's a sphere of light and you've got black pieces of paper, layers of them covering it. And each one of those layers is one of those traumas or anxieties or walls you've built up for yourself. Meditation helps you pull that from your subconscious conscience in a slow, subtle way that you kind of realize why you've put that black there and, and allows you to start pulling those layers off bit by bit. You could spend a lot it, I think. But as you learn to do that kind of thing, you start to see your true self, which you don't even know yourself sometimes, I think. Mm. Or you realize what triggers you or what affects you. Like someone could say a simple phrase, nine out of ten people are not even think anything of it, but you might react angrily or sadly or it triggers you, right? Sure. And you need to know why. And I think meditation is a great way to calm your mind and calm the turbulence to a point that you can start to logically and emotionally work through that kind of thing. It's interesting what you're talking about. It's making bringing to mind a documentary I watched a little while ago about Jim Carrey, and it was footage from the filming of Man on the Moon, Andy Kaufman's story. And in the documentary, in the documentary, he's there's like footage that was never released of of off the set, and he's he's acting like Andy Kaufman quite a bit of the time, even when they're not filming. And he's also um, there's an uh, Andy Kaufman's alter ego that's that's part of the whole equation and he's dressed up and acting like Andy Kaufman's alter ego and it's interesting that Jim Carrey in speaking about that said like if I could lose myself so completely into a character even not on set when we're just hanging out um, if I could lose myself so completely into that character then who, who really is Jim Carrey and it was it really kind of, from my understanding, really sparked this yeah, I've, I've, deeper questioning for him and his I own life. I haven't seen this one, but I've heard stories, like especially some actors that did a, a movie where it was a very traumatic role to play and they have to get into it. And like some of them did lose themselves in that character or a piece of that character stuck with them somehow because they got into that mindset. Mm-hmm. Which is the same thing that I was talking about earlier, your surroundings, you're, you're affected by what you're told every day, even though it's, it's subconscious, to the point that, depending how strongly people imply you should be something else, it affects you to a point that you question who you are. I've been there several times, lost as to who I am. You always know who you are, but you question it to a point that you go insane in your brain thinking about it, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a process, like your show, mental health, That's everyone's afraid of it. People think I'm crazy, people think this, but that's the process you have to go through to get past it. Mm-hmm. You need to question yourself, and you should always question yourself. We're learning new stuff every day. You learn stuff from people you see every day. You can't hold 
true to this image you think you are because that's probably not who you are. It's who you've been told to be mm-hmm. or who you want to be. It's the alter ego image of you, right? Yeah. It's hard to come to terms with the dark side of yourself, I guess. Not that it's really that dark, but we think it is maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting too. I think about the the symbolism of somebody setting off on a journey, and I think about my own story with having nervous breakdown in two thousand eight, and all the stuff that I went through and had to learn about myself and my mm-hmm. past and my fears and all this stuff. And your point about people's perceptions about mental health and how we're we're still getting used to having that be a normal everyday conversation about taking care of our mental health and being open about it, what we're going through. And that if somebody sets out on a journey and they, they get the flu while they're on this journey and then they take some time to get better, they lay down, they sleep for a few days and take some different fluids, whatever they, they know due to, due to kind of their self-reference points from the past that, okay, I've got the flu. It's going to be a few days, maybe a week, maybe two at the most going to go away and then I'm going to be back on my journey whereas with mental health I think for a lot of people and and what I learned through my journey was that mental health is similar in the sense that we're going to have these periods along the way of our life that it's going to be like the flu where it's going to take us out for a while or it's going to cause us to question a lot of things or it's going to be dark like you say or very painful and yet we, we can't lose the awareness through that difficult time because it's happening in our mind. We can't lose the awareness that this too, like the flu, can be a temporary thing if we allow it to be. If we allow ourselves to learn from it and grow from it and, and allow it to have a purpose and not get lost in it to the point that now we think this is us now and we're never going to get out of it. That's the key, I think. It's just what you said right there is there's hope you will get past it, but you have to be willing to. And I think there's a lot of people out there that give up that hope and just try to accept that this is the, the way their life will be. And it will be if you let it, but it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. You've got to do the, the self work, I guess, and the go through the pain, but don't, the way I learned in retrospect was kind of, don't think of it as pain and misery and negativity. Think of it as your body telling you there's something wrong, like a fire alarm going off. There's something wrong that you need to deal with, and it's not what you think. It's something that you're reacting to or the way you're seeing something. And again, like meditation or any kind of relaxation technique calms you to the point that you can start to rationally think about the pain but not think of it as negatively and feel it kind of thing I guess mm. is what I sort of found mm-hmm. and I mean your journey was different than mine but the end result is the same and that going through the pain of it and the problems and the issues and the way you feel it's all the same it doesn't matter how traumatic or how small it is in the end it, the effect is similar and I think some people belittle stuff like that too they well, I had this happen to me, so my pain's worse than yours, and I don't think that's the case at all. Mm-hmm. Everyone reacts differently. What a lot of people do, I think, is they keep pushing that person, and they keep, because they love them, they care about them, they want them to be doing something, but they are doing something, 
they're dealing with themselves and that's what people don't realize they need that space mm-hmm. they need that time they don't need people nagging them and telling them what they should be that's part of the problem they know what they should be doing but they can't right that's sort of how i felt when i was at my worst i guess and you would just see people's faces, you know, they feel sorry for you and stuff like that. And <laughs> it doesn't help, but as long as they're just there and supporting you, that's the best I think I found, rather than people sort of nagging. And it takes, it can take years, it can take months. It, it, there isn't a time on that. It's not like the cold and you know it'll be gone in three to five days. And there can be layers to the mental issue you're dealing with. You might think it's this, but it might be this, 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 and this combined to make it this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I think, I think too, to that point that with the layers and, and once we go through that first kind of thing in our life, maybe we're, we get out of our teens and university, college, what have you, and we're, life is maybe a bit of a, we're kind of coasting to that point. We're still maybe living off our parents or what have you, and then, yeah. And then we get into the real world and we, we suffer our first sef- setback or, or our first crisis or however you want to describe it. And and kind of the, the naivete of youth causes us to, we, we feel so um, shocked by it. And so we almost take it personally that, well, how dare we this? take it personally, yeah, yeah. How dare this come into my life? And we get stuck looking at, like waiting for justice like this should never have happened and i think part of maturing and growing emotionally and spiritually is to develop that awareness that this is life there's there's going to be a series of these things that are going to happen from now until age what you know 70 80 if you will and and i in yeah. in the maturing part is accepting that this each time i go through these I, it's not like I'm going to go looking for them, but if I can kind of no. if I can kind of expect that this is part of the equation of life, then I can build resilience through those moments instead of waiting for somebody to come and rescue me. Do you know what I mean? And you, do you feel that way? You you feel more resilient and stronger for what you've gone through. I know I can tell. Mm. And. I feel the same way and I talk to many other people who have gone through various traumatic events that once they've gotten past that point feel the same way too. I learned a crap load of stuff about myself going through all the pain and problems and issues. I blamed the world for it at the time. I blamed other people, I blamed everyone around it except myself. But in the end it was all me and how I reacted to things or how I perceived things. Hmm. And once you gotta hit that rock bottom kind of thing sometimes to to get up again and be that better person and be beyond what was bringing you down and have those realizations and not let them, like you said, realize that's life. It's not a show or held happily ever after a fairy tale. Which I wonder sometimes if that's why people think that way, you know. Or brought up in school to do A, B, C, D, and then get married, have kids, have this great job, and live happily ever after, right? That's how we're brought up. Mm-hmm. Like you said, after well, a couple of years after university and the job, you realize, Christ, that's not the way the world works. 
Well, you think it, you think life is going to be easy because it's pretty much been easy up to this point. Yeah. And I know that's not everybody's experience, but I mean, I I was. I think it's a lot of people's experience that you're just you're just coasting to that point. You haven't had to really you're not you haven't really been battle tested through anything. No, I didn't have to think about much, right? You done high school, I'm going to go to school to be this, so you do that, and then you are that, and then you're like, what the hell am I doing? Mm -hmm. (laughs) At some point in your life. I guess that's the midlife crisis for most people, is about that kind of time when you've realized life isn't that recipe that you were told when you were a little kid. For some, maybe it is, I don't know. But for many, I don't think it is. Yeah, I think part of that realization is coming to the awareness that I was told I was supposed to care about these things. Maybe it's chasing chasing money or or uh-huh. the the perfect idea of what this is supposed to do for me. And then I so I set out and I chase those things. And then I get to a certain point where I'm like, I don't feel any happier by having these things. So now I have to yeah. kind of deprogram my thinking around having the expectation not only through myself but other people that I'm supposed to continue to care about these things. Yeah, like I was sitting at my desk at the ministry one day, so I had a, I was a science officer, I had a government job, awesome pension, I was married, had a house, at that time I was, I was happy, but I still wasn't happy, something was missing, and that's, like we talked earlier, it was, that was the beginning when things started popping to mind, there's something missing, there's something that I'm not happy about. When I shed all that from my life, and changed everything some people would think you're insane why would you give up a job like that why would you do that you screwed your whole life yeah you could see it that way but I'm way freaking happier than I ever was way less stressed than I trying to pursue things I think are good for me and that I can help people with and that's sort of where I'm going I think that's where you've been going with your life too mm-hmm yeah, the stress is, I mean, there's, I, I kind of distinguish it between, there's there's stress that comes from pressure in in mm-hmm. terms of, like, we're, we're dealing with something internal and, and we're having to move through our stuff, our complexity, and we're, gro- we're growing as a result of that. So there's, there's a stress and a pressure to that, which is kind of a necessary part of the equation. Then there's this other stress that we, we get used to putting up with, this external stress of a job or maybe a relationship. And bills. <laughs> constant, yeah, just drowning in bills or whatever. There's just fi- layers and layers of stuff that just sort of stresses you out and gets dumped on you. You're just chasing one thing to the next, just trying to survive, just trying to tread water. That's that's a different yeah. kind of stress. Treading water is a good way to put it, I think, because that's kind of how I thought. I'm, I'm maintaining this lifestyle, but why am I? Because mm. I, I quit the ministry and went to do this Tendo thing in England, and I had people at work questioning my sanity, and why would you want to do something like that? And my answer at the time was, because this is just what I feel like I need to do, and I'm going to do it. I'm a bit stubborn that way sometimes when I finally make my mind up, which can take years, it seems. But hmm. that's one of the things I learned doing the Tendo thing was that only you know you. 
You know me as a friend, Tim, but even advice you give me can be useless to me because only I know what is best for me. And that's a hard thing to accept for people. Trusting their own instincts and trusting their gut, I think that's one of the biggest hard part, hardest parts for people these days because you're, you're told you should be this and live like this, but you're feeling different. And once you start realizing the difference, it's scary to to trust yourself and not have validation from any other human being around you, I guess, sometimes. Yes. You get it from people, but, you know, in essence, you've got to validate yourself and that's it. You take their information, their opinion, but in the end, it's your decision. It's how you feel. It's what you know about yourself. Mm. And I mean, I'm still coming to terms with that kind of thing, learning that kind of thing. I don't know that in life you'd ever stop learning about yourself or removing layers from yourself but as you do it gets easier and better and when you become more your true self is what a lot of people call it and call it whatever you want but it's more the person your soul speaks to you I guess as as you become that person I find you just start attracting the people that jive with you in life and you don't need to worry about creating this image to fit in. Mm-hmm. A lot of us do, especially in smaller towns or, you know, communities like that where there's a less broad view, I guess, is the best way to put it. Sure. I don't know. That's sort of how I see things these days. Well, I think a lot of people, too. I mean, I, well, I'll speak personally. I used to be a self help junkie, and I now I discern between there's a a healthy commitment to self-development and then there's uh, the other side of it which is just saturated with with self-help type stuff and being just going from you know one guru to the next or one teacher to the next or one book to the next and and the and the problem with that is that it it's it, like it the can, diet dude. you're not really addressing the problem you're just going to one different thing to another you're Right? Is that kind of what you're yeah. getting at? Yeah, in a way, for sure. It kind of and and to speak to what you admit, the point you had made, it kind of nullifies your ability to really trust deeply in your own sense of your own path. And if somebody's out there selling, it's hard. It's a hard. I mean, I'm a coach, I'm a counselor, so I certainly appreciate helping people and the importance of supporting people and leading them. But I I think what we're both trying to say is trying to support them in a way that helps them to find to get clearer on knowing how to find and stay tuned into their own path and make decisions and not trying to find a formula that guru a is trying to sell you over the internet exactly because there's so uh, many continue yeah there's so many nuances but they're so critical they're details of our own individual paths that some guy could do xyz and that worked for him so then i drop everything and i go do that and my path is completely unique to his so my circumstances are different so i go and i do that and and it doesn't work out i just think that there's yeah we have to get focused the whole self-help industry and movement has to be more focused on not these massive volume sales of just trying to sell formulas to people because it's going to fill our pockets with 10 million at the end of the year, but that it actually directs people in a more authentic way to tuning into who they, what their, the uniqueness of their own path. 
Yeah, that's exactly why I use the word guide journey on my website because we're saying I'm not a master meditator or anything like that, but I'm well experienced. I unique experiences and I've had my downtimes and this and that. But yeah, like what you're saying, the essence is you you can only guide a person. You can't tell a lot of people want to tell them what to do. You need to do this, you must do this, you should do this. Like you said, that doesn't work for everyone. Everyone has different experiences, different reactions, different traumas. You can only guide them with what you know. A lot of the gurus, like you're saying, are they're forcing you into this formula. You must do this, you must do this. Which was another, like the Tendo thing, it's can be deemed as a religion, but it's not really. There's no religious doctrine or anything like that. There's no... We're not telling you how to be or just showing you the door kind of thing is how one of my past students would put it. Mm. That door's always open. I'm not forcing you to go through it and stay on the other side even. Come back and forth. You can't always be perfect. They call it falling, I guess, is what a lot of people would say. I've fallen off my path. I've fallen off this. fallen off the wagon. That's going to happen. That's where most people get down because they get down on that fact. But the measure of who you are is how you get back up and that you do get back up. Mm. But you have to find your own way. All these things are just tools that can help you or maybe not help you. So maybe you could take a second and tell us uh, about your business. Inner Peace Meditation website, like I said, is www.innerpeacemeditation.ca. You offer classes. Yeah, right now I'm offering private meditation classes. I don't have the space to have actual classes, but that is the plan in the future. But I'm hoping to, one, teach people how to just take five, ten minutes and de-stress if they need to. And that's, if that's all you learn from a meditation class of mine, that's all the power to you because that's the biggest thing is just taking the time to decompress a little bit. Over time, as you learn to decompress yourself and become more in the moment and most humans spend time worrying about the future or, or worrying about what they did in the past, it doesn't matter. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. If you like great music from the 60s and 70s and good covers, listen to Frankly Speaking, music to tickle your memory bone on Fridays at 1 p.m. on CFRC Radio. This has been another edition of Talk with Timmy G on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. If you have any questions or feedback or would like to be featured on the show, please email me at info at timothydgauthier.com. That's info at timothydgauthier.com. Every Thursday from 7 to 8.30, I facilitate a free drop-in group called MindWell. It's a support group for anybody dealing with burnout, stress, anxiety. Again, that's every Thursday from 7 to 8.30. Address 1111 Taylor Kid Boulevard at St. Paul the Apostle. Till next week, be smart, be safe.
This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.